welcome to Girls Talk Cyber, GTC, the podcast to help young people feel empowered, educated and engaged on all things cybersecurity. My name's Em and I'm joined by my co-host, Jules. Hey everyone! In this podcast, we want to take away the tech bro cybersecurity jargon and give you the opportunity to understand this incredibly exciting space to help you redefine how you act online. We're going to be covering a wide range of topics this season, from teaching you how to bolster your online security, to interviewing amazing women in the field, and taking a peek behind the curtain into the dark web. And don't worry, here at GTC, we are a judgment-free zone. We don't want to scare you off Facebook or shame job you for clicking a link. No, 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 no. We're here to get you involved in the conversation and empower you to feel as though in the event of a cyber attack or a scary online occurrence, you have the tools and resources to deal with it. And to keep the conversation going, Jules and I have set up a Facebook group and an Instagram account for our GTC community to ask questions, share cybersecurity stories, and keep up to date with the latest cyber tips and tricks. So today's episode I'm really excited about because we're jumping into a topic which is a really fascinating part of cybersecurity, the dark web. Oh, the dark web. Yes, very exciting. It's a topic that not a lot of people, including me, know much about because it feels mysterious and kind of like a scary place that I don't want to go near. Yeah, absolutely. And to be honest, you're not really going to be hearing much from Em and I today. We're going to be joined by a threat intelligence expert who will be chatting with us, who will be asking a few questions to, and who will be helping us understand this space. Let's get into it, Em. Let's do it. Okay, so today we have a special guest on the podcast as our expert to deep dive into our dark web episode. Welcome to Leah Pinto from CyberCX. Would you like to introduce yourself and explain how you landed in intelligence? Yeah, sure. Um, Hi, girls. Hi, everyone. My name is Leah. I am in the CyberCX cyber intelligence team. I landed here after a background in law enforcement. So I've been doing intel for about 12 years now. I started out in law enforcement serious and organized crime intel and I moved through that and fell into cyber a few years ago and now I am at CyberCX as part of the intel team. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Leah. It really sounds like you've had quite an exciting background and I'm particularly excited today for this episode just because I think that talking about the dark web, it's it's a bit mysterious. Um, we hear the dark web being thrown around in media and different news articles recently. Um, so definitely excited to unpack it a little more or deep dive into what exactly the dark web is. Um, So maybe that's where we can start today. What actually is the dark web? Yeah, sure can. So a really quick non-techie 101 of the internet, you have three components. You have the clear web or the surface web, you have the deep web, and you have the dark web. So the clear web is everything you see um, via a search engine like Google. So Mm -hmm. anything you can look up or anything you can access via a website. And it usually makes up about 10% of the internet. Only 10%? Yeah, it's quite small, um, surprisingly. It's actually the the deep web that makes up the large majority of the internet. So the deep web is the part of the internet that you can't access through a search engine. So that might be something that's password protected, like your internet banking or, for example, your Netflix account login. So all of my accounts are actually on the deep web. Correct. Not the clear web. Yes, because you can't access it without a password just via a search engine. Right. That's so fascinating. I didn't realise. So all of my accounts, my Facebook, my Netflix, my Stan, they're all actually on the deep web. Yep. Cool. 
Um, so then lastly, you have the dark web. So it's quite a small amount, but it's the layer below the deep web. And what it is, it's it requires software or a browser such as a Tor, so the Onion Router, to access. Um, and on those sort of websites or those sites, you will see instead of a .com, it'll have a .onion on it, for example. Why is it called Onion? Because the analogy is there's very many layers, so you're okay. peeling back the layers. Wow, it really is a Shrek and Donkey moment right there. Yeah, accidentally in love, accidentally an onion. I like it. <laughs> um, so you access the dark web through Tor. Right. So it's inherently and it's built to be anonymous, so you can't be tracked. That's really interesting to hear about the anonymous side of the dark web, but it kind of makes me wonder, why is the dark web more anonymous than the clear web? So without going super techie, it basically what it means is it bounces your IP address. So when you access the internet, you're using your IP address, which is kind of like your number plate. So it goes with you. It's identifiable. It's not specifically identifiable to you, but it's an identifier. So you bounce around a bunch of IP addresses and you get to a website on Tor or, for example, the dark web and that they can't identify you. So the dark web is incredibly anonymous. Mm. Um, it's also incredibly slow because you are bouncing all around the world. Yes. So streaming, for example, and videos will be really, really slow. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is anonymous and they will not be able to find who you are. Awesome. So I start with my own number plate, bounce around heaps of different nodes, IP addresses, and then end up on the dark web with a different number plate and no one knows who I am. Correct. Yep. Cool. So you've talked about how the dark web can be used to anonymize yourself. Is that why the dark web exists? Yeah, look, there's a lot of mysteriousness around the dark web. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of people will think where the dark web is inherently illegal. Um, And yes, there are a large number of illegal activities on there where you can, for example, buy drugs, guns, um, people's data. But there are a lot of legitimate uses for Tor. Some of those might be um, in countries where there is high censorship programs. Mm -hmm. They might be used by journalists or activists to access information or to post information. It could be used by political dissidents, so people organising protests, for example, that don't want to get in trouble by their state or law enforcement in their home country. Um, Whistleblowers, so the Edward Snowden leaks, for example. Um, Law enforcement operations. So law enforcement can go undercover to track down, identify and arrest criminals. Mm -hmm. And of course, the cybersecurity industry. So my team, for example, might monitor the dark web using Tor um, to understand what information is out there and who's been breached and what groups, cyber extortion groups are doing, are targeting Australian organisations. Leah, you mentioned uh, extortion groups um, who are responsible for a lot of these attacks and and we're seeing them a lot more commonly in the Australian kind of cybersecurity space. What exactly is an extortion group? Yeah, so cyber extortion can be one of two components. It can be where a ransomware is deployed on a system, so your system's locked up and until you pay that ransom, you don't get the decryptor to access your systems again. Um, So it's kind of like a kidnapping, right? If someone kidnaps your friend and says, give me $50,000 and then you can have them back. Then we have what's called data theft extortion, where the group will go in, they will find the data, 
it could be like a smash and grab, like a, a robbery of your house where they grab everything that they can yep. or it could be identifying what's important and sitting in your system and your network for a period of time till they find what's important and then take that. Um, what we're seeing groups do at the moment is both. So we call that double extortion where mm-hmm. groups deploy ransomware and they also steal your information and they use that to extort you for a particular sum of money, which is often paid in crypto. And and why is it why is it paid in crypto? The anonymous nature. Right. So yeah, okay. we don't we don't criminals don't want to be paid in cash. Yep. Okay, realistically as well, Leah, what kind of numbers and figures are we talking about here? Is this you know, you said fifty grand in your example. Is that a realistic figure for these sorts of groups? What are they asking for? Yeah, look, we see a really widespread of demands. Cyber extortion landscape, and I could probably talk about this for way longer than we have, but cyber extortion has changed a lot over the last sort of 12 to 18 months. We see really sophisticated groups that have been around and are really, really well structured, like businesses, and we see these not so sophisticated, lower, like entry level groups. So you can see extortions or ransom demands being anything from $5,000 up to the millions of dollars. So that's really scary and confronting to hear about all the illegal activities that are occurring on the dark web. And we've all seen the news recently with headlines such as Medibank hit with data breach, ransomware group demanding a large payment for the data to be um, not released to the public. What does this mean and what's your take on how this will affect the Australian population? Yeah, look, um, we have termed since September last year, we've termed this as a bit of Australia's data reckoning. So what it means is that we are starting to be impacted by cyber extortion groups that have been around for a while and globally they have been attacking organisations. Australia seemed to be a little bit sheltered up until recently and with Medibank, Optus, MyDeal, Latitude, we've seen a whole lot of incidents which have been slapped across the media. It's kind of an interesting time and I, you know, I refer it back to my organised crime days where I used to work and understand what was happening in, for example, a shooting and go home and then see it on the news. Mm. And moving into cyber, I took a little bit of a breath away from that, knowing that I could have that separation. And since September, we, we work all day on these attacks, understanding the cyber extortion groups, and then we go home and we see it on the news. Mm. So cyber has become like this dinner table conversation. What does it mean for you? And I know for me, I was caught up in quite a lot of them. My children's names were caught up in a lot of them. Mm -hmm. So I know that can be really scary. What does it mean? So, for example, it might mean information of yours is now leaked onto the dark web, what's called a data leak site. So every cyber extortion group has a data leak site. So that's where they will post the information. Um, They'll post samples to try and get their ransom paid or they will post all of the information or they will sell that information to other groups for as little as $10, for example, for some personal information. What that can be is your date of birth, your driver's license. Um, And what we saw with Medibank, which I guess is worth talking about for a second, is Mm -hmm. the medical history. Um, We're calling this harm maximisation strategies. So some cyber extortion groups are starting to use these harm maximisation strategies. Mm. So what it means is when they attack an organisation, they stay in their network for longer They look for that sensitive information Mm -hmm. and then they steal that and they use that information to extort the customer or the organisation. With Medibank, what we saw was the sensitive information was released in different tiers. Mm -hmm. Um, So we might be talking about abortions claims. So it's stuff that's really sensitive and really means a lot 
to the victims mm-hmm. um, and they're using that to try and get the company to pay. It was kind of the first time that we've seen this and it, it, it's a little bit scary as we're seeing groups continue to do this activity. What it also means is some of these extortion groups have search functions on their data leak site, so their DLS, where you can go and search what of your data has been stolen. Mm-hmm. Um, we strongly advise against that because it's likely or highly likely that these groups are then looking at that information to see what is being searched and what's most important what to about? the individual. Yeah, Right. So that's kind of saying the DLS, I jump on and see, type in my name. Yep. And if I pop up across different hacks, I will know about it, but then the hackers will also know that I've I care about that being out there and yep. knowledgeable. Potentially, yeah. Interesting. So how should I find out if my data has been breached? A lot of the time, the company that has been breached will have been in contact with you or you contact the company. So okay. uh, again, I strongly advise che- against checking on the dark web or the DLS. If your information has been stolen, I would go back to the the organisation that has been breached and ask them what information has been stolen and potentially what their advice is. And is that just the general email, like contact us at Medibank or is that a... Yeah, you should have, like I know I personally receive correspondence from Medibank. Right. Um, It should have contact details in there. Okay, awesome. So you mentioned earlier that the dark web can also be used for um, things like purchasing drugs or guns or, you know, some illegal activity. Um, What does that actually look like? Yeah, so when you use Tor, you can access what's called marketplaces. Um, So there are a number of them, I guess. They're kind of like an eBay of the dark web um, where you can buy these kind of things. Again, strongly advise against it. This stuff is illegal. Do not do it. Uh, But hypothetically, so we're looking at these marketplaces. But when you're accessing them, they don't have the same sort of protections as you expect on the internet. So they're based on user reviews. And let's be honest, it's a criminal reviewing a criminal. Um, How much can you trust that? That's a really interesting thing to hear. Like, Bob the criminal gave me a really good fake ID, would recommend. And then Steve comes in and like, yeah, loved him too. Like, that's that's really interesting to hear. You can't trust it. They can also be fake. So there are a bunch of fake marketplaces Mm -hmm. that are just looking to either steal your crypto or steal your login for the marketplace to then buy things using your details. Wow. It's like a whole other set of scams but on the dark web for dark web users. Yeah, and without the protections that we kind of have with the internet. Um, so you use crypto to buy things, so you're not putting in your FPOS card. Again, I guess it's a really good example. If you don't understand crypto and have your own crypto wallet, you shouldn't be on the dark web because it goes to that level of technical understanding and knowledge. And as I said, you can buy things on there, like guns, like Unfortunately, you can buy things like child porn, um, exploits, so your hacking tools. It's a really big thing. Like cyber extortion groups, for example, can buy phishing as a service or a kit that they could then use to attack another organisation. Does this also mean that people are out there creating hacking tools and then, yeah, selling selling those? It's a whole marketplace of selling and buying hacking tools to then make you a better hacker. Yeah, so I guess it kind of refers to what I was talking about of the entry-level cyber criminal where they don't have to have the skills to code and develop these tools themselves. They can just buy them from somewhere else. And then going back to, you know, my organised crime analogy that I spoke about before – 
it's like a few years ago, outlaw motorcycle groups, so bikies, they used to stick to their own and then hate each other, for example. They'd shoot at each other for any particular reason. Then they started to realise that they are commodities. So one drug cook for one group could then be outsourced as a cook for another group. Mm. Um, cybercrime has kind of come become like that, where you can buy tools and outsource as a commodity for others. So that makes it really hard for law enforcement, for us as cybersecurity professionals, to identify and we call it attribute, so identify who they are, what they want, and why they're attacking you. So another interesting point, um, with guns, for example, so in the US, the FBI is the one that's interested in the dark web. Right. Where guns are being sold, the ATF becomes interested. So anecdotally, they are a lot more um, hard-lined around this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So a lot of cyber criminals don't necessarily want the ATF attention. And, you know, like you might have seen, for example, and it's part of the mysterious nature of the dark web, hitmen for hire. Look, I I don't know of any cases where this has actually happened. If you see a hitman for hire, it could potentially be a scam um, because we don't really hear about that too often. But it does show that, you know, insidious nature of the dark web. So, Lyric Girls Talk Cyber, we're not only interested in, uh, you know, things like the dark web and learning about all of these different cybersecurity concepts, um, but we're also really keen to be bringing or to be making cybersecurity a bit more accessible for our listeners. So, we were just wondering, what's your advice for women to stay safe online, whether it's something they may not have thought about or what's something that you, from experience, think is a real key takeaway? Yeah, look, I'd probably start with like a zero trust mentality. Mm -hmm. So don't always believe, don't take things at face value. Start from the fact that you think a lot of either SMS or email or instant message is a scam Mm -hmm. until it's proven otherwise. Um, I think it's really important to ask the right questions of these people or to really verify who you are talking to, particularly if you've been impacted by these breaches, because unfortunately the sad reality is, you know, there's a lot of data out there about you at the moment and these scams can be really well tailored to make you believe that they are real and make you really think that this is the person that you think it would be. So if we adopt this kind of zero trust where you're expecting it to be fake until proven otherwise, Mm. I think you're sitting in a much better position. And how can you do that proving right, I suppose? How can you do that verification? Um, Yeah, so like, for example, if you get a phone call which comes up and it appears to be your bank and they verify with a bunch of your personal information and then ask you for more information, you could either say no and hang up Mm -hmm. or you could hang up and call them back at the bank number. I personally, I let anything that looks suspicious, I don't answer it. If it's a text message, I just leave it because the reality is someone is going to keep trying if they're after money from you. They will keep trying to contact you in different ways. Even a work email, which I might think might be phishing, I generally just ignore it until heard otherwise, and then I will make sure I understand it. Emails, really, really important to actually click on the email address to see that it isn't doesn't look dodgy, and it's pretty easy to tell when it looks dodgy. And uh, clicking on the email address won't damage your online no, footprint at all. No, no, it won't. But don't go to any links. No. So any email that looks suspicious or any email until you have verified it or you're sure it's not suspicious, I would definitely recommend not to going to any external link. Yeah. Sometimes when I get a dodgy call that I'm not expecting or from a number, I'll Google the number. Yeah. And then often that can throw up websites showing that it is a scam or it is actually like my accountant trying to call me and I haven't saved his number. Yep. Would you recommend that 
Yeah, that's a really good start. And then like in that example, I would personally, I would then call your accountant back on the number on the website and make sure that you're speaking to them and that you can be certain that that's who they are. Leah, what's your biggest learning from being in this industry? Yeah, I think um, cyber isn't as scary and as far away as what we probably think it is. And I mean, I know for me, five years ago, cyber seemed super scary. When I first started, I didn't understand everything. But since, you know, Australia's data reckoning and since September last year, cyber is in your face more now. And it's really important to understand what information is being held by companies I know traditionally, and a lot of companies now are going through this to understand what data they hold and what they shouldn't be hold. But I guess as a draw a line in the sand, don't give information away unless you need to. You know, you don't need to just to get one email from or a 10% voucher from a website. Don't give them all your information. Don't create passwords that are the same from one website to another. We've seen a lot of cyber attacks where they're grabbing passwords from dumps and using them across different logins and being able to access that way. Um, So I guess, you know, like if I can give one takeaway that I've learned from the industry is um, the basics. If you just get the basics right of cybersecurity to keep yourself safe. So zero trust, um, don't reuse your passwords, maybe use something like a password manager, get MFA or 2FA on everything that you can. So that might mean just going onto your internet banking and seeing in your security settings if you can enable that. So what that means is you will get a text message or you will use um, an authenticator app on your Mm. phone. Don't let anyone ever access that. Yeah, we do touch on that on episode one. So go back and have a listen to hear more about MFA there. And we also will have some Instagram posts set up on how to set up MFA on common accounts like your Gmail, your Instagram and your Facebook. All right. Thank you so much, Leah, for coming on today's uh, podcast. We've loved having you on as our first guest. Uh, What are some key takeaways you'd like the listeners to remember about this Dark Web episode? Uh, I guess I would probably just say don't. You know, if you don't understand from a technical perspective the Dark Web and the protections that it does not have, I wouldn't use it. Um, So if you don't have the technical understanding to understand who you're interacting with and what you're actually doing and how it can be traced or tracked or what it actually means from a legal perspective, definitely don't do it. You know, the Tor browser, for example, has a really noble cause at heart, but the reality is it's mostly used for illegal purposes. So my key advice is don't use it. There's really nothing that you need to be doing on the dark web that you can't be doing on the clear web. I think that's a really great way to sum it up, um, Leah. It's been super interesting, though, to learn about the dark web, um, deep dive a little more into why it's created, uh, what people use it for, those sorts of uh, key, key burning questions, I suppose. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. And that's a wrap on today's episode on the dark web. Gosh, it was such a good one, wasn't it? I loved it. I learned so much. And the onions <laughs> relating to the dark web. Who would have thought vegetables and the dark web go together? Yeah, super strange. Thanks so much to Leah again for coming on and helping the GTC community understand this space. Because again, I don't think it's something that a lot of people know much about. And this really uh, opened my eyes to a couple of things to look out for. Yeah, absolutely. And don't forget, as always, you can keep the conversation going over at our Facebook group, Girls Talk Cyber, to share your cyber stories with us and each other and talk about how you found the episode today. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week. See you then.